Venables. Self-referential, self-absorbed play about family dynamics. 16 years old. 16 years old. 16 years old. 16 years old. Act 3. The final word. At 16 years old, I tell my father about how things are with me. It goes okay, I guess, but not as well as I'd expected. In fact, he is shocked. He tries to tell me I may be confused or bisexual or ambivalent like the ancient Greeks. I tell him I am firmly on one end of the spectrum where the gay boys hang out making big eyes at each other. I wonder why he never saw through my disguise over the years. I suppose it doesn't take much effort to disguise something that even the people who are closest to you really don't want to see. After a while, Dad hugs me hard. He is scared for me and wants to protect me from the ignorant ones, and God knows, there are a lot of them out there. I reassure him I'll be okay. I've lived with this for a long time, just like the X-Men. I know that the price of this superpower is a certain amount of vigilance. The standard facts of life. Well, Daniel, did your dad get this part of your story right? Pretty much. He and mum were really good. Very supportive. Just like I knew they would be. So why didn't you come out to them sooner? Because it was always going to be awkward and embarrassing. You know, when I was 12 or so, Dad gave me the standard facts of life speech. Very solemn, very serious. Daniel, he says, when a man loves a woman and so on and so forth, penises penetrating vaginas, blah, blah. And I wanted to say, hold on, Dad, you lost me at the penises poking the vaginas. I mean, it's very interesting how you heteros have babies and good luck to you with perpetuating the species and all that. But I'm more interested in the nitty gritty about man on man action. When a man loves a man. What's your take on that? I needed inside information and I needed it fast. But of course, I couldn't ask him. It's like I was living in a foreign country. My dad couldn't help me. He didn't know the language or anything about the customs. So, for a long while, there didn't seem to be much point telling him anything. It was just easier to internalise it. Handle it myself. But in the end, the whole secret thing becomes too big. Too much to hide away. It was a huge relief to stop all the pretending. We were crushed. Sophie, can I ask how you and Mark felt when Daniel told you he was gay? Of course, we absolutely supported him and told him it made no difference at all. But the truth? We were crushed. Anxious, afraid for him, selfishly sad. Why, why do you say selfishly sad? Because I and Mark, we went into a kind of mourning, as if we'd lost things we'd always expected, always thought we'd have. A daughter-in-law, Daniel's wedding day, grandchildren from Daniel and his wife. All of that seemed to go up in smoke at the moment when he told us he was gay. But of course gay people have all those things if they choose to, don't they? Except, of course, you'll have a son-in-law instead of a daughter-in-law. Yes, but that's true. But uh, that's the secondary thinking, the, the logical, comforting stuff you come up with later. At first, though, 
It's a shock. There's a huge shift, like an earthquake, like the ground gives way under you. It takes a while to adjust. Anyway, in Daniel's case, he seems adamant that marriage and kids are for heteros and he has absolutely no interest in living that sort of settled suburban lifestyle. So we've had to make a mental adjustment to the new reality and ditch some of our old preconceptions, which we've done. And we are totally behind Daniel and whatever life choices he wants to make. And uh, I think that comes through in Mark's monologue, despite all the criticisms he's been copying from you about exploitation and so on. Seventeen years old. Seventeen years old. Seventeen years old. Seventeen years old. At seventeen years old, Friday night is church fellowship night. I like Christians. Well, you know, the ones I meet at fellowship anyway. I find them kindly and unworldly, like the cast of a 1950s Hollywood musical. Anyway, this particular Friday night, we have a bonfire at the back of the church grounds, just the senior fellowship group. Robert, the youth minister, asks each of us to share something about ourselves we might like the group to pray about. When it is my turn, the warm, inclusive ambience goes straight to my head. I stand up and reveal my secret identity like Clark Kent whipping off the spectacles. Surprise! I'm gay! No, really, guys. I'm serious. This is who I really am. And if you would like to pray for me to be accepted and loved as I am, then that would be great. The smiles slip away. There is silence, just the crackling of the fire. The ambience is no longer warm or inclusive. The looks on their faces, oh my God, you should see the look on their faces. Frowning, disturbed, this could get ugly. It seems not inconceivable that they're going to burn me at the stake like Joan of Arc, or maybe stone me. Robert certainly looks prepared to cast the first stone. Then one of my friends stands up, takes a deep breath, and says that he doesn't care whether I'm gay or straight or whatever. Someone else does the same, then everybody's patting me on the back in a group hug-in, and I feel hugely relieved. It's horribly patronising, of course, but preferable to being burnt at the stake or stoned to death, so I go along with it. At this point, I notice Robert, the youth minister, is staring at me like the dark lord of Beelzebub has materialised amongst the church flock. Robert coldly thanks me for my contribution and moves on to the next person. I notice that he forgets to pray for me. The next day, Robert sends me a text message suggesting I might like to find another fellowship group to attend. And he posts me a book a kind of Christian handbook explaining what is wrong with me. This book suggests that my father must have been a poor role model. It says he is to blame due to his supposed coldness and indifference. Apparently, I'm sexually drawn to men because I've been seeking the father figure I never really had. Dad reads the handbook from cover to cover, Surprisingly enough, his reaction isn't cold and indifferent. In fact, he says he's going to punch Robert on the nose the next time he sees him. 
Together, Dad and I write a letter to the church elders' committee just to let them know how disgusting and ignorant and bigoted we find their handbook. And I insist we add that somewhere in the Alpha Centauri star system, there may be asexual gelatinous blobs who are laughing at them so hard their heads would roll off. If they had heads, which is debatable. The church elders, I mean. The end of the monologue packs a dramatic punch. Is that how it was, Daniel? Did you really come out like that? (laughs) No way. That's not me. I couldn't do anything like that. I doubt whether anyone could or would. You'd have to be a drama queen to stand up and make a public announcement. That was just Dad being a writer, milking it for a bit of theatre. So how did you come out to your friends? Particularly your church friends? It was much more low-key. I just started telling people and kept going till everyone I cared about knew. But apart from the big reveal that Dad totally made up for his monologue, the rest of it was true, I think. The the way the church authorities reacted, they didn't exactly embrace me with love and acceptance. I remember it was bad for a while. I remember rejection by the church, but not my friends there. The church's leadership response was to pray the gay away. Dad and Mum were really supportive. I think coming out to my church affected my parents almost as much as me. Dad saw the rejection of me as being like a rejection of all of us. The whole family. He got over it. But for a while there, he was full of rage at the prejudice of the God authorities and super protective of me. Which was touching. But, you know... Looking back, I see that a part of his response was feeling humiliation at what I am. There were a few judgmental relations and friends, conservative types who made Dad feel defensive. He would deny that, I know, but none of them, my family, could help how they felt back then when it all blew up in public. They had to work through some feelings too. Sue your ass. Before we start, I want to put on record that until I listen and approve of the final cut of this podcast, I'm not giving you permission to use anything I've said. I'm sorry, Mark, you can't do that. Yes, I can. No, you can't. I can. This is getting childish. Come on, Mark, we're better than this. But just for the record, you can't. Just watch me, buddy. I'll sue your ass off. Okay, let's just do the interview. We can talk about the legals later. You'll be talking to my lawyer. Whatever. Anyway, I'm giving you an opportunity now to have your say, so fire away, Mark. I think the entire premise of this podcast has been skewed, distorted. You've had an agenda right from the start. Okay, interesting. And what is that agenda? You made a decision to aggressively go after me. You targeted me after choosing to interpret my monologue as a clear-cut case of cultural appropriation. Heterosplaining, actually. A straight man's perspective on a gay boy's story. And, uh, Mark, what are you doing? I'm Googling heterosplaining, whatever the hell that is. How do you spell it? It won't be there. You won't find it. I came up with the word myself. It's a neologism. Rather proud of it, actually. You made it up? Yes. Great. That's breathtaking hypocrisy, that is. Why? You attack me for fictionalising my son's story, and all the while, you're inventing nonsense words to have a go at me. 
At least all my words in that monologue are in the bloody dictionary. I came up with a term for a comparatively new phenomenon. The commodification of gay culture for hetero audience. You can hang whatever fancy label you like on it. The point is, you accused me of stealing Daniel's story for my own gratification. And in the process, you turned me into the villain. But the joke's on you. There's no crime. No one got hurt. It's not Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Okay, funny you should say that, because Daniel likened growing up with a dad who was a writer as, quote, like living with a serial killer. As in, he knew you'd do a humorous hatchet job on him eventually. So, you know, maybe there has been a crime, and maybe, just maybe, straight, white, middle-aged Colonel Mustard doesn't realise he did it. He actually said serial killer? Yes. Serial killer. Jesus. I can't believe Daniel said that about me. That's just so hurtful. Uh, Should I fetch fetch a box of tissues or, you know, a glass of water? Get lost. Shall we press on then? Yeah, go on. Stick the knife in deeper. I think I know who the real serial killer is around here. Would you concede now that there is a, shall we say, predatory aspect to your writing generally, and this monologue in particular? I'm a writer, goddammit. This is what I do. This is who I am. I'm not writing this monologue to represent every gay kid or every coming-out story. It's not an instruction manual on how to come out. It's my kid's story, which makes it also partly my story, me and the rest of my family. So don't expect me to whitewash anything. If some of the scenes in my monologue are troubling to a politically correct audience, well, that's their problem, not mine. I'm writing from a character's perspective, not constructing an essay on sexual politics or whatever. I wasn't providing answers in the monologue. I was asking questions. Respect the artist, you Philistine. Respect the goddamn artist. I think that's where we'll leave it. Thank you for allowing us into your life and answering our questions. (laughs) And boy, do I regret it. Big, big mistake. There's so much more to do. Thanks for coming back, Sophie. I understand things have become a little tense between the participants in this podcast. It's a very sensitive subject for all concerned, me included. This has not been easy. I wanted to talk a bit more about Daniel. I want to tell you the things that never seem to come up when people talk about it. Like what? Well, like, for instance, that he's great at woodwork. He could have been a carpenter. He's got the skills for it. You didn't know that about him, did you? No, it hasn't come up. No, it never does. And he's a real green thumb, loves to get the dirt under his fingernails in the garden. You didn't know that either, did you? No. No, because you're not interested in that side of Daniel, are you? Which side, exactly? The side that contradicts the stereotype. For you, it has to be all high camp and theatre and Spice Girls and one cliché after another. There's so much more to Daniel. So much richness and depth and capacity. But you don't see it. Well, you can't if you're not looking for it, can you? And it's not just you, it's other people too. All they see are the clichés that they're looking for. And they're there, I'm not saying they're not. But that's not the whole story of who he is. That's not all. He's not simply a gay boy. He's a boy who happens to be gay. 
And as for Mark and his stupid humorous monologue, well, he totally missed the point, didn't he, about his own son? That monologue is not who Daniel actually is. It's who Mark is. It's just bloody heterosexual middle-aged Mark trying to imagine what it would be like to live Daniel's story. So you're saying Mark's monologue is a caricature. In effect, it doesn't do the subject justice. Oh, God. I suppose that is what I'm saying, yes. Don't tell him I said that. Can you please, please cut that out of the final edit? Of course I will. So he'd be upset if even you were to criticise his writing. Especially if it were to come from me. That would be a betrayal. You know these writer types, bottomless egos. (laughs) I don't know how I managed to live with the man. Neither do I. I've written a last paragraph. Daniel, you had some things you wanted to say? Yes. Look, bottom line, this whole monologue thing has been blown all out of proportion. What I'd really like is to be left alone. That's it, really. Just left in peace. But I feel like I need to say a couple of things. Get some stuff off of my chest. I've written a last paragraph to my dad's monologue, the way I would have liked it to end. I'm going to ask him to add it on to the piece if it ever gets a reading anywhere again. Kind of like a postscript. Can I read it to you? Go ahead. So this is it. I know it's time, and maybe even overtime, to step up and say things that need to be said. That should have been said. I've left this too long. At first, it was out of fear. I don't know why I felt so afraid, but I did. Later it came down to shyness and unease amongst relations and family friends and neighbours and teachers. I see now there was no reason why it had to be that way. Why did my sexuality have to be a burden, to myself or anyone else? It took me years to figure it out. This wasn't my baggage, it was theirs all along. I'm talking about intolerant people, the ones who couldn't handle my sexual identity. They have to own their prejudices and fears and just let my kind breathe. That's all we want. Just shove over a little, you pushy bastards, and give us some space. I want to make something clear. I was never ashamed of who I was. Never. That's not my story. But I know that there are still people to this day who have real trouble accepting my sexuality. I realise now that I wasn't protecting myself. I was protecting them. Which is ridiculous. It's never been about my awkwardness with who I am. It's all about theirs. Well, not anymore. They have to confront their own ignorance and intolerance. The fear of those who are different runs deep in our genes. I recognise that. But those who have oppressed me behind my back and to my face, those who have given me that look, the one with contempt or disapproval and sometimes even anger for what I am, These people have to be called out. They need to be made to own all the sly comments and sneers. Each of their bigoted words on their own seemed hardly worth mentioning, but taken as a whole, in one young person's life, they amount to something big. A great big hurt. So my last word is a shout-out to the people who have tried to put me down my entire life just because of my sexual identity. I am not ashamed of who I am. The shame should be all yours.
So that's my brother's story. Or a version of it. It turned into a shitfest. Pretty obvious what was going to happen, but my family just didn't see it. Like lambs to the slaughter. This has been tough on Daniel. He never wanted this kind of attention. What he's always wanted is to be as low-key as unnoticed as possible. When he came out years ago, we were all supportive and encouraging. But we were also pretty shocked and, privately, we were horrified. Not for moral reasons, but for social ones. What would the older members of our family say? What about our friends? And we were scared for Daniel, worried about homophobes, especially in the church that he was a member of. What we should have done was shrug our shoulders and say, so you're gay, so what? Like it was normal, like it was just another difference, like the color of his eyes or his height or being left-handed or whatever. Instead, we closed ranks around him and tried to shield him like he was disabled, abnormal. I was part of that. I watched it all for years, cringing, but doing exactly the same, circling my little brother within the walls of our family love. We would never have persecuted him. We never dreamed of oppressing him, but we were guilty of smothering him. Caring too much is a kind of control. But some good has come out of all of this. Maybe there was a festering boil on the bum of my family that had to be lanced. Maybe the release of all this pent-up poisonous pus had to happen. Sure, there's been a pain, but I think we all get it now. It's not just the bigots out there who made life difficult for Daniel. It's all of us. Family, friends, teachers, employers, all the heteros who felt awkward around some poor kid who happened to be born gay. This was never about Daniel's coming out story. Because he didn't need to come out. We did. Cannibals. Script by Mark Hunter. Music by Rowan Lane. Stephanie is played by Heidi Harrington-Johnson. The interviewer is Clive Lane. The actor is Mark Desai. Mark is Rob White. Sophie is Lois Marsh. Daniel is Zoltan Sneed. Voice coach, Christine Rule. Produced by Neil Ashworth with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Recorded in the Blackwall Studios, Hornsby.